Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Creative Florida History in Fiction and Nonfiction. Writing good history, and narrative history particularly, requires just as much creativity as a novelist. We'll discuss historic plat maps, Older maps are a complex combination of art and social, economic, political, and geographic information. And the endangered Colvin House in Polk County. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. One of the most popular books about Florida history is actually a work of fiction, A Land Remembered by Patrick Smith. While many of the situations depicted in the book are factual, the McGivey family and other characters are products of the author's imagination. Morris J. O'Sullivan, professor emeritus of literature at Rollins College and president of the Florida Historical Society, discusses the fine line between historical works and some novels. I think for many cultures, there is no difference. If we think of the Greek rhapsodes, the Anglo-Saxon scops, the Celtic bards, the African griots, they're the storytellers, and they're telling the story of their history. I always blame Plato for the break between literature and history. In the Republic, he decided he would ban literary writers. He would ban what he called poets, but he meant playwrights, lyric poets, epic poets. And the ban seems to be primarily because they appealed primarily to the emotions and their work often was fictional. But to me, both literature and history are actually two separate branches of the same mother church, kind of like Episcopalians and Anglicans. We worship at the altar of narrative. We just approach it a little bit differently. James Michael Denham is professor of history and director of the Lawton M. Child Center for Florida History at Florida Southern College. He explains some of the differences and similarities between historical fiction and narrative history. Historians and people who write history have rules, guidelines, rules of evidence, rules of um, sources, um, and, and all kinds of guardrails, I guess, that we need to follow. But on the other hand, writing good history, and narrative history particularly, requires just as much creativity as a novelist. Because even though you're using 
actual material, even though you're using actual letters, diaries, tax returns, census records, all the things, court records, all the things that make up sources, you still have to interpret them in a creative way and put them in a context. And then once you do that, once you think you understand what the sources say, then you have to create a narrative and make sense out of it. So, so history is an art. It's not a science. History books that are well-written can be considered literature. Sometimes novels are accepted as history by the general public, even if they contain fictional elements. In 1972, Morris O'Sullivan had a conversation with Alex Haley about a new book he was writing. So he started talking about a book that was going to trace his ancestry. And of course, we all know it was published as Roots. And so before this session, I decided to find out what Roots was categorized as. Is it fiction or is it history? And a majority of people categorize it as fiction. And I felt the breeze from Mike's head nodding strongly up and down <laughs> on that. And yet, I suspect many of us, especially of a certain generation, have our sense of the African-American experience from Africa into slavery into the United States from roots. That has stayed with us. That's the way we understand that experience. And that's where I have some problems and for this, I will probably be impeached by the Florida Historical Society <laughs> in really believing that there is a wall between the two. I really want to believe that there is a permeable membrane and that, to me, there are great historians who are stylistically great. And I teach them in writing classes to show how you can turn a sentence beautifully. But then there are historians who write in ways that touch me and whose stories whose accounts remain with me. And we're now learning that that's because they have functioned in parts of my brain that retain memories in all the different cortexes of the brain that we're learning affect the way we understand the world and, and see the world. Just as Alex Haley's fictionalized roots inspired an interest in African-American history, Novels like Patrick Smith's A Land Remembered increase awareness about Florida history. Keith Honeycutt is professor of English at Florida Southern College. His favorite novel based on Florida history is Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. First of all, it's just a fantastic story. Second, it's full of history. Uh, and, and to me, the founding of Eatonville, although the founding in that, uh, that novel is not historically accurate. Um, still, it creates a sense in the reader that this thing happened. And for those of us who want more history, we can go to other sources to find out more. That's one reason. Uh, and also the um, treatment of the great hurricane of 1928 in um, Lake Okeechobee. Again, uh, we don't get all the facts from this novel, but it's, it does encourage us to look elsewhere. And we see what human experience would have been like in that situation. The characters, of course, are, are marvelous. It deals with the issues of the day, sexism, racism, all of the isms you can think of. It's all compressed into this novel representing its time. It has folklore 
It has just about everything that I like in a novel. One of James Michael Denham's favorite novels based on Florida history is Red Grass River by James Carlos Blake. It's a fictional story about the Ashley gang who made Bonnie and Clyde look like amateurs. Amazing bank robbers. They were bootleggers before Prohibition, doing all this stuff down in Miami, in the boom period in Miami, really before the boom, really. And this book, Red Grass River, is a kind of a recreation of that story. It's just an amazing story. And I think it may be as close to real as we'll ever get about the Ashley Gang in terms of they didn't exactly keep a lot of records. Another great book is uh, White Shadow by Ace Adkins. Ace Adkins was a newspaper reporter for the Tampa Tribune before they went under. He became a novelist. He lives in Oxford, Mississippi now, and his first novel was White Shadow about Charlie Wall from Tampa, who was the cracker mobster, the original mobster in Tampa before the Italians came and began to take over. And he was actually brutally murdered, and it was an unsolved crime, but most people think it was probably the new mob coming in in 1950. Morris O'Sullivan cites many novelists who include historical facts about Florida in their work. He says that the books of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings helped him to better understand the people who call themselves crackers. O'Sullivan believes that Florida historians should learn from great novelists. I think it's important to find ways to get people engaged and involved in your writing. E.O. Wilson, the great sociobiologist, once said, people respect nonfiction, but read fiction. And you may have seen Stephen Hawking saying that his book, Brief History of Time, which was the best-selling science work of all time, sold over 25 million, he said his greatest regret was that everybody buys his book, but more people have bought the book than read the book, and more people have read Harry Potter than have bought the books. And he wanted to try and change that. I think that's part of what we need to do train the next generation of historians to write books that people are actually going to read. Morris J. O'Sullivan, James Michael Denham, and Keith Honeycutt participated in a panel discussion about creative Florida history in fiction and nonfiction presented at the Florida Historical Society Public History Forum in Gainesville. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, both novels based on fact and nonfiction. Watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Draw me a map that leads me back to you. Help me find the road you're on I just need directions home Draw me a map That leads me back
Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, maps are a vital tool for historians and geographers, and they often tell us much more than where rivers, swamps, mountains, and towns are located. There is an allure to maps that draws the viewer in. The longer you look at a map, the more you see. Sadly, with the advent of digital maps and navigation tools, we generally only use maps to obtain directions from point A to point B. And although digital mapping provides us with more information than ever before, most viewers limit their attention to what they can see on a small screen. Older maps are a complex combination of art and social, economic, political, and geographic information. You can be lost for hours in a map, tracing the paths and roads, locating the farms and house lots, surveying the watersheds and forests. Even when maps are inaccurate, as the early mapping of Florida was, there are lessons to be learned. The maps speak to the limitations of the navigation tools and to the worldview of the map makers. There is a special collection of maps that almost everyone has seen if they have ever been to a local museum or historical society archives. Those are the town maps that display the first layout of the streets and house lots, the original plat map that determines all future city maps. These familiar gridded layouts are most often used by the public to realize the way life has changed, to determine what was on their lot a century earlier, or to locate great-grandma's house. City planners, of course, use those old maps for more professional reasons. Seldom do we stop to imagine the vision the map represents for the people who decided to make the town their home. And because, to the casual observer, the maps appear so similar in design as to be almost interchangeable, we seldom consider the uniqueness of maps, that some may represent important transitions in town planning, even in towns that were located on borderlands, in frontier areas easily dismissed by their urban friends and family in more settled areas. Connie, we often consider urban planning a relatively new area of professionalism, in Florida anyway, but you seem to be saying that we should consider town planning even on the Florida frontier to understand the visions of town founders. Historians of urban planning recognize those perhaps subtle changes in town construction and offer important insights into the expectations of town builders. A recent article in the Florida Historical Quarterly by Mark Reinberger, professor emeritus at the University of Georgia, who spent his career in architectural and urban planning history, provides us with an important revision of planning in towns in middle Florida in the territorial and early statehood periods. Focusing on Tallahassee, St. Mark's, Apalachicola, and St. Joseph, he argues that in middle Florida towns, we see echoes of many features of urban development in the antebellum period, a mix of public and private endeavor, planned capitals and speculative towns, the grid, canals, railroads, suburbanization, the zoning of communities by their lot size, and esplanades and other features of town beautification. But Florida town planning was not simply an echo of earlier endeavors. 
Each of the towns named by Reinberger adapts prevailing urban planning layouts to their own particular geography and economic social expectations for the future. Reinberger devotes the most space and analysis to the town map of Tallahassee. Indeed, he claims that, although Tallahassee's plan represents a version of preceding models for American towns, the designer's real creativity appeared in the lot layout. The site for the new capital of Florida was chosen in 1823 by John Lee Williams and W.H. Simmons and named for an earlier indigenous settlement. The federal government donated a quarter section of land for the capital and three-quarter sections to pay for the construction of the capital building. Governor William P. Duval submitted three city plan drawings to the Legislative Council for consideration. Although the governor claimed the plans were drawn under his direction, attribution for the drawings was never made clear and remains in doubt today. Reinberger names three possibilities, Duvall, Judge Augustus Woodward, and Surveyor General Robert A. Butler. Reinberger does not dwell on who drew the plans, but what the Tallahassee plans represent. Quote, the last and most sophisticated of state designs in the Southeast, a remarkable collection of urban designs for which the region can be justly proud and phenomenon which occurred only sporadically elsewhere in the nation. That's a powerful statement to make about a frontier town. Yes. Quoting, the complexity of Tallahassee's plan deserves close analysis for its many carefully considered features that suggest its designers knew southern capitals and national planning trends, Reinberger writes. Among the features he highlights are the location of the Capitol building on an elevated site in a square with approximately a half mile on each side, seven blocks in each direction, a plan that represents earlier models for capital cities. But it was the lot layout that set the Tallahassee design apart, an arrangement of a complexity unusual and perhaps unique in American planning history. In each block, the lot layout depended on the distance from the center and orbital squares. Blocks closer to the center had smaller lots. Those in more distant blocks were larger in size. Why the differentiation in lot size? Reinberger suggests three overlapping reasons. Equalization of lot values, creation of a type of zoning, and the development of separate commercial and residential districts. Reinberger analyzes the town maps of each of the other middle Florida towns named earlier, but I will only say a few words and leave those for you to explore as you read the fall 2021 issue of the quarterly. The plan for Apalachicola can be found in the British Museum Maps Collection and owed much to the Tallahassee plan with a large central square and four orbital squares. Development began at the waterfront and advanced outward. The entire plan contained 1,759 dwelling lots, 521 business lots, and 60 wharf lots. Interesting features of the plan were Lafayette and Florida promenades in the residential area facing Apalachicola Bay. Both still exist as parks. Rival St. Joseph 
fronted a bay that could accommodate ocean-going ships but had no access to the Apalachicola River. Town promoters dredged nearby Lake Wimico, which flowed into the river and built a railroad to one of the tributaries. The Lake Wimico and St. Joseph Canal Company was incorporated in 1835, and the railroad opened in 1836. The company laid out the town of St. Joseph and dominated the town plan. St. Joseph was the first town in the United States laid out by a railroad. The tracks ran down the center of the main thoroughfare to the wharf. Although the competition with Apalachicola was fierce, St. Joseph did not survive. The current town of St. Joseph dates from the early 20th century. Reinberger concluded his study of antebellum town planning with the claim that, quote, early Florida possessed an entire group of sophisticated and imaginative towns that utilized a variety of planning elements and that show sensitivity to local topography and conditions. No other area of the American frontier can show a comparable collection. Well, I'll have to take another look at those town maps. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Help me find the road you're on, I just need directions home. This is Florida Frontiers. The Colvin House in Polk County is historic but endangered. Holly Baker has more. The Florida Trust for Historic Preservation's annual 11 to Save list brings attention to the most threatened historic properties and resources across Florida. Colvin House in Polk County has recently been added to the 11 to Save list. Ennis Davis is an urban planning consultant and a trustee for the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation. He told me more about Colvin House. Completed in 1920, the Colvin House is one of the first residences built by African-American pioneers in the city of Lake Wells. Lake Wells is located in Polk County. It was founded around 1911 and is actually named for Sidney I. Wells, who was a state agent of Florida at the time. The Colvin House was built for Dunny and Anna Colvin, who were Gullah Geechee settlers from North Carolina and the house is actually one of the older surviving structures in what is known as uh, the Northwest Community of Lake Wales and historically was uh, platted as a community of uh, Lincoln Park. Lincoln Park, the location of Colvin House, was the only neighborhood in town where African Americans could own property before desegregation. The Northwest Community was settled in the early 20th century by turpentine and citrus industry laborers. Donnie Colvin was one of the pioneer turpentine workers in the area who over time moved to the middle class and constructed this bungalow residence in 1920 on the southeast corner of Washington Avenue and D Street. 
And this particular neighborhood in this house really signified um, an area where during segregation, this is where African-Americans in the city of Lake Wells were pretty much uh, forced to live. And over time, this neighborhood, about a block or two away from the Colvin House, also had a very vibrant business district, Lincoln Avenue, which was a place where there were restaurants and juke joints and little bars and clubs and other businesses associated with the Chitlin Circuit era. The term Chitlin Circuit refers to the nightclubs, dance halls, juke joints, and theaters where Black entertainers performed during segregation. Colvin House is one of the last buildings left from the time when the neighborhood was just a stroll away from the vibrant nightlife and entertainment in the Black Business District. Unfortunately, as time has gone on, the community has lost a lot of its original building stock through incremental demolition and redevelopment over the decades. So the Colvin House, which is now currently abandoned and in deterioration, the nominators in Lake Wales, they really seek to raise awareness to protect this particular structure because of its uh, unique history and its age, which is very uh, representative to the original built environment and historically significant story of the Northwest community in Lake Wales. Colvin House is also significant because of Donnie and Annie Colvin's Gola roots. Gola communities can be found throughout Florida, especially along the coast but many have disappeared after falling victim to urban renewal and gentrification. Preserving Colvin House would also protect a bit of Gullah Geechee history in Florida. Ennis Davis. Gullah Geechee basically is a reference to descendants of Africans who were enslaved in the, what we tend to call the low country, which is the southeastern Atlantic coast of the United States, roughly from St. John's County to the south in Florida up to Wilmington, North Carolina, to the north, about 30 miles inland. So many people familiar with Charleston and, and Savannah with that. The corridor also extends up into North Carolina and Florida. And um, the Gullah Geechee community is a community that's really held on to a lot of its Africanisms over the years due to a close bond in the various communities within that area, as well as this coastal area largely being exempt and protected from real estate development during the first half of the 20th century. Following the Civil War, as many Galagichi uh, descendants left the area looking for economic opportunity in other parts of the country, such as Central Florida, the Colvins are amongst that group that settled in the Lake Wells area and built a legacy for themselves which still stands today with its Northwest Lake Wells community, and as well as the Colvin House, uh, which is one of the reasons that it was nominated to be a part of 11 to Save. To learn more about the Florida Trust for Historic Preservation and their annual 11 to Save list, go to floridatrust.org. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Connie Lester and Holly Baker. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle.
Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.